Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. Never before has the future of nicotine vaping in Canada looked so perilous. After already suffering an explosion in costs stemming from the federal government's vaping excise tax, which went into effect just a year ago, now the province of Quebec has implemented a flavor ban that all but guarantees the destruction of the legal vaping industry in that province leaving hundreds of thousands of vapors with few options remaining. But the news just keeps getting worse. Just a day after Quebec's flavor ban went into force, the Ontario provincial government made a stunning announcement in its 2023 fall economic statement. To deter the consumption of products that, quote, pose health risks, the Ontario provincial government is accepting the federal government's invitation to join the federal excise tax program thus doubling the excise duty on vaping products sold in Canada's largest market. Joining us today to discuss these troubling developments is Ian Irvine, Professor of Economics at the Department of Economics at Concordia University in Montreal. Ian, thanks again for joining us on RegWatch. Good to be with you. Ian, let's start with the Quebec flavor ban. Now that it has been implemented, what's your reaction? It's still early days, but there's very little doubt that uh, a large number of vape shops are going to close because they have lived off flavors all of this time until two weeks ago. Um, what's going to happen on the consumer side is very uncertain, and that uncertainty has increased as a result of the decision by the Ford government in Ontario to increase taxes there. Um, I, I have spoken with um, some people in the Canadian Vaping Association in the executive there, and they fully anticipate that uh, more than half of the vape shops will, will close. And I think that's a real uh, pity because these are legal, these are legal businesses, they're employing Quebecers, they're paying their taxes, and they're going to be closed down unnecessarily, I think, uh, in pursuit of, I'm not quite sure what objective. Now, it's pretty much a complete ban, is it not? Yes, the uh, pretty well uh, the whole range of flavors has been banned with the exception of tobacco and then the, the neutral flavor, whatever, you know, uh, the liquid no, with no flavor. But in addition to that, there uh, has been a, a very important ban on, dis on disposable products and on uh, pod-based products as well. Uh, it will not be legal to uh, sell devices which have a capacity of more than two milliliters. Now, while that won't affect uh, most of the pod-based systems, because they typically have between one and two milliliters in their pods, it will have a, a huge effect on the disposables market. Now, the disposables market has really been the dominant end of the whole vaping market in the last year, two years. And over that time, consumers have expressed uh, a desire to purchase disposables which have more and more capacity in them. So a couple of years ago, when the disposables market started off, we were witnessing products which had a capacity of two milliliters or four milliliters or whatever. But very quickly, the average capacity of disposable devices went up to 10, maybe even 12 milliliters. And until a couple of weeks ago in Quebec, that would have a 10 or a 12 milliliter capacity disposable 
would have been the choice of a typical average uh, medium consumer. So all those devices have been banned in addition to the flavors. So it's not just that you will be able to consume only tobacco or a neutral flavor, you will only be able to consume uh, those e-liquids in a device which has a maximum capacity of two milliliters. So I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that about 95% of the products which were legal two weeks ago are no longer legal in, in Quebec. It's also going to be the case that um, it will not be legal to sell e-liquid in bottles or containers containing more than 30 milliliters of e-juice. So if you were the type of consumer who, who um, tended to purchase your e-liquid in 60 milliliter containers or even 120 milliliter containers, you will no longer be able to do that. And the reason people used to buy in, and they still do in most provinces, the reason some people prefer to buy in larger uh, quantities is that the, the cost is uh, much reduced relative to a 30 milliliter bottle. So there is really a, a very sweeping set of restrictions now in place in Quebec. And uh, what's going to happen is, um, well, the degree to which the market is going to be impacted is, is unknown, but we do know for sure that that impact is going to be very big. You know, whether it's going to wipe out half of the illegal market or half of the legal market or two thirds of it or three quarters of it, um, it's really difficult to say uh, at this point in time. And um, there are no publicly available data at the present time coming out of Statistics Canada. So while it will be possible to track what happens in the corner stores, uh, it will not be possible to track what is happening in the specialty vape shops because the corner stores, um, their sales are tracked by Nielsen data. And so in due course, in a couple of months time, if you have the wherewithal to buy the Nielsen data, which is survey data on purchases in corner stores and gas stations, we will be in a position to know the degree to which sales have declined in those outlets, but we'll still be in the dark in relation to sales in the vape shops. And does anyone benefit from the flavor ban? The flavor ban, uh, ha the flavor ban is not unique to Quebec. A number of jurisdictions in the United States have uh, imposed flavor bans, and the, the the driving thought behind flavor bans is that uh, teen vapors are attracted to vaping by the flavors. And therefore, if we ban flavors, teens are less likely to initiate vaping, and that will be better for their health. Uh, we have to keep in mind at the same time that adults um, use flavors to about the same degree as teens do. Uh, maybe teens use them, prefer maybe 85% of teens prefer them, 80% or 75% of adults prefer them. But broadly speaking, there is a symmetry in the tastes for flavors. So when we see these flavor bans coming in, it is the case that public health officials have in their mind that they are concerned about teen use. And they believe that by banning the flavors, teens will be less inclined to vape. But they generally do not put very much weight on the fact that 
adults prefer flavors as well. And flavors are in, uh, flavors are an aspect of vaping that induces smokers to move over to vaping. And indeed, if you look at uh, quit rates among smokers who move to vaping, it is overwhelmingly the case that those people who quit smoking altogether, they move from being dual users to, uh, to vapors only, they're for the most part using fruit flavors as well. So fruit flavors are uh, something that adults like, and they are something that help adults to quit smoking. But those benefits to adults don't get much weight in the policy considerations. It's all focused on the belief that by banning flavors, we will reduce uh, youth vaping. What do you think will be the impact on the vape shops? You mentioned that possibly half might close. When I look at it, I go, there's no product left to sell if flavors are banned. Yes, my, my son went into a vape the local, his local vape shop uh, the other day, and he sent me a picture of uh, what was on the shelves, and the shelves were all empty. So uh, it's inevitable that a huge number of vape shops will close down. Um, they'll probably stay open for a couple of months, um, but then they'll, they'll slowly find that they, uh, they can't compete. Or they, they can't do enough volume to make it worthwhile to pay the rent and pay their employees. Um, they won't have enough product to satisfy their consumers. So what, what we'll see is uh, a very small percentage, I think a relatively small percentage of the number of vape shops that were open a month ago uh, will be open in two or three months' time. We're talking millions and millions and millions of dollars of business each month by tons of uh, great businesses. I mean, these employees are going to be out of out of jobs. I mean, people are going to lose houses and homes. Yes. Uh, we don't really know where the buyers or the consumers are going to go. We don't know how many of them will be satisfied with the tobacco and the neutral flavors. Um, I suspect that relatively few will be happy with that. And, um, you know, that's a natural lead in to what happened then in Ontario uh, approximately the same time. Uh, had, had Ontario stayed the course, then uh, we would have found that, you know, Quebecers would cross from Gatineau to Ottawa and be able to buy their supplies there or they would go across to Cornwall or wherever else they would, would choose to go, or they might choose to order online in Ontario and hope that they would uh, be able to get the particular product that they wanted that was no longer uh, available in the big shops in Quebec. Uh, now, that, that situation in a certain sense would have been good for the federal government because it would have meant even if the consumers in Quebec were not paying the excise taxes on the products in the vape shops in Quebec, they were at least going into Ontario and paying the federal excise tax in Ottawa or Cornwall rather than in Gatineau or, or Montreal. But now you have a situation where the prices are increasing very dramatically in Ontario. And so consumers who might have availed of availability in Ontario um, are less likely to, to seek out that as an alternative to not being able to buy in Quebec, and they will begin to look at their alternative options. 
So if you if you think of all of buying in Ontario as a, a gray market, and you think of buying a, a totally in the legal market as a, a black market, then uh, you know the the gray market would have generated uh, tax revenue for the federal government, but the black market uh, will not. It's possible that the uh, buyers in Quebec may go to other provinces and go online and uh, seek out vendors who will ship them the product that they are looking for, product that is not illegal in the particular province of supply. And so that will be one way in which um, consumers will seek to circumvent the law in Quebec. The other way, of course, is just to, to deal with illegal vendors, out and out illegal vendors. If they, if they buy from um, you know, Alberta or Manitoba or wherever that hasn't implemented the matching uh, excise tax, then they may find vendors who will sell them the flavored product in the quantity that they desire and will only be charging the federal excise tax and not a provincial tax. And so some consumers will do that. How many will do it is uh, difficult to predict. I want to call the viewer's attention to how Doug Ford's progressive conservative government is justifying the doubling of the federal excise tax in the province of Ontario. Here again is the section in the fall economic statement. It starts with this line, quote, research suggests youth vaping can lead to smoking. According to research published in the Canadian Medical Association Journal, for every six non-smokers who use vaping products, one person will begin smoking cigarettes. Ian, I can't think of a more scurrilous statement to be made about vaping. Well, um, you see, that implies causation. So um, there are two approaches to uh, looking at these data. One is to look at behavior in a temporal sense. You know, does, it, does a young person who vape is that young person who vapes more likely to go on and become a smoker than somebody who never vapes? And the answer is yes, that is correct. Does that imply causation? I would say no. Now to understand why it would not imply causation, uh, imagine the following um, experiment, uh, Brent. So there are several risky behaviors that young people can engage in. They might choose to vape, Vaping is not good for their health. It's just that it's a lot less dangerous than smoking. Uh, young people might choose to vape. They uh, might choose to consume alcohol at an early age. They might consume cannabis at an early age. They may engage in sexual activity uh, at an early age. They may smoke at an early age. Now, if you were to look at um, temporal data for these young people, what you would find is that kids who engage in any one of those activities, suppose at the, by the age of 15, any one of those activities, they are more likely to engage in another activity a year or two down the line. So what you would find if you looked at the data in all probability is that somebody who experiments with alcohol at the age of 14 or 15 is going to be more likely to experiment with cigarettes when they're 16 or 17. Or if they engage in alcohol, if they experiment with alcohol at the age of 15, they may be more likely to have uh, sexual activity at the age of 16 or 17. So what we in the harm movement call this is um, a common liability. In other words, you have uh, some kids who are greater risk takers than others. And the risk taking 
behavior expresses itself in any number of ways. But the fact that you observe one risky behavior at 15 and another risky behavior at 17 does not mean that the particular risky behavior that the teen engaged in at 15 led to the risky behavior at 17. So to be very blunt about it, suppose you have um, young people who engage in early sex at the age of 15, and then you find that they are more likely to smoke than people who do not engage in early sex. Was it the sex that started them smoking? Well, these are very, these are very uh, simple questions, but they are very rarely confronted by the medical profession. And um, I have the greatest respect for doctors as doctors. They're wonderful people. They cure us. They tell us how to take care of ourselves. They diagnose us. They give us prescriptions for our ailments. But a lot of the time, they're lousy statisticians. They're not trained as biostatisticians, and they engage in statistical work and impute causation to temporal relations without figuring out the multiple interpretations that can be put on the data. So uh, is, is vaping a gateway to smoking? I do not believe it is uh, a gateway to smoking, and it hasn't been proven uh, by any reasonable statistical standard. I'll add one more thing to this, uh, Brent, if I may. If you look at smoking rates in Canada, it used to be the case that the highest smoking rate was among people in, in their 20s. And the reason for that was, of course, that most people who began to smoke had initiated by the age of 20. And then over the course of their lifetime, people gradually gave up smoking. So you used to have very high rates among people in the 20 to 25 age group. And then as, as you progress through the life cycle, you would observe lower and lower rates. People would quit smoking, older people would die from smoking, um, but you would observe lower rates. But what we've observed in the last several years is a complete reversing of that pattern. The adults, that is to say those who are over 20, the lowest smoking rate is now in the 20 to 25 age group. And if it were the case that there were a significant follow-on to vaping while teens, and if we really believe that vaping causes smoking, we should have more smoking in that age group. Instead, we have had a dramatic decline. The rate has almost halved in the space of about five years. And so what's actually happening is that the kids who uh, began to vape four and five years ago, they decided for the most part to vape rather than smoke. Not to say some of them didn't smoke, some of them did, but most of them continued vaping and most of them therefore have contributed to a dramatic decline in the number of young adults who are, are smoking. Um, again, this is something that is not brought up very frequently in, in public debate. So really, um, you know, vaping leading to smoking, it's, it's rarely proven in, in, in these analyses that people in, in involve themselves in because they, they don't even consider the possibility that you have a, a group of risky kids and a group of less risky kids and, and any behavior um, for a risky kid can show up in any other behavior uh, a couple of years down the line. And the Ontario government, you know, they led with the kids. And so that get, puts everybody right there with the kids. But the second part of their justification for joining the federal government's excise tax program was not even about kids at all. It said, according to research published in the Canadian Medical Journal, for every six non-smokers who use vaping products, one person will begin smoking. So they really compounded this gateway for theory, every it's not six even... kids for every six kids who engage who consume alcohol at the age of 15 
you know, one will become a smoker uh, relative to the group kids who did not. But Ian, I'm thinking, but the way this is framed is that it might not even just be kids they're talking about because the Canadian government and public health has been really pushing youth, which are not kids anymore, not teens. They've got just as much worry about a 21-year-old who is never a smoker who's decided to pick up vaping, the use of recreational nicotine as an adult. They, they're trying uh, to dissuade that too. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is part of an inherited um, perspective on the tobacco industry. And it's understandable on the part of people who are older, on the part of older doctors who have seen so many people die as a result of the horrendous impacts of smoking uh, over over a lifetime. And so uh, the opposition to nicotine is really an opposition to cigarettes and uh, an opposition to combustion primarily. Um, but in the modern era, the consumption of nicotine can be undertaken without combustion, and that dramatically reduces the consequences of using nicotine. I'm not advocating nicotine use for anybody, least of all for youth, but uh, we, we do know that vaping contains about um, the Royal College of Physicians in England, uh, Public Health England have been telling us for eight, nine, 10 years now, that the toxicity content of e-vapor is at most 5% of the toxicity of smoke that comes from Boston. So there are health, there are health risks associated with vaping, but they are dramatically uh, reduced relative to smoking. So I think the, the, the dominant ethic is, you know, smoking has killed so many people over time that we've got to be against every aspect of this. But we can now separate the nicotine out into a lower risk product that doesn't involve combustion, doesn't involve tar. And um, I, think that, I think the public health community hasn't come around to the view that consumption of nicotine is much less, without combustion, is much less dangerous than the consumption of nicotine with combustion. But I want to talk to you also about governments here, since you, you raised the question, if you'll allow me. Um, I, I think that when Ottawa implemented its excise tax, it didn't do a terribly good job in bringing the provinces on board. Now, tobacco is a shared jurisdiction between the federal government and the provincial governments. So if you put yourself in the position of a provincial government, and you observe the federal government uh, putting a tax in place, uh, it's very easy to say, oh, gee, why am I part of this? And then the federal government at the same time says, well, you can be part of this. You can double our tax and come on board. We'll collect the revenue and give it back to you. But if you look at the size of the excise tax that's going to be in place now in Ontario, um, I think a much better approach to this at the start would have been if the federal government had uh, proposed a system that was akin to the excise tax system that is levied on cannabis. And so uh, broadly what the federal government did in that instance was it levied a, a dollar a gram and it said to the provinces, look, we'll give you uh, three quarters of the proceeds. What we're going to try to do is to keep the uh, price of cannabis um, 
low enough so that it would be able to compete with the illegal sector. And that was a very sensitive approach. And it's a, it's a real shame that that approach was not implemented um, you know, a couple of years ago when the federal government started um, planning to implement, implement an excise tax. Because the philosophy of keeping cannabis prices competitive with the illegal sector was a good philosophy. And then it's surprising that it didn't translate over to the vaping and smoking sector of the economy. Uh, surprisingly, Ottawa didn't say, well, let's keep the price of the lower risk product a lot lower than the price of the high risk product so that people will move away from the high risk product. At least that would be one incentive for them to move away from the high risk product. So um, at this point, um, I fear that, uh, you know, now, now we're going to have 60% of Canada's population in Quebec and Ontario, subject to the, the flavor bans in Quebec and all of the other restrictions that have been imposed. And also we're going to have Ontario subject to very high taxes. We already have British Columbia and uh, Nova Scotia uh, with very strong restrictions on, on vaping. So we're moving to a point where we've got about three quarters of Canada. Uh, whenever Ontario implements its tax, we'll have three quarters of Canada either subject to very strong restrictions on the products that could be sold or very high taxes. And uh, you have to worry greatly about the size of the illegal sector when that situation uh, comes about. I, I wish it were the case that governments could stop right now and say, let's stand back and, and think about all of this. Do we really want the prices of low risk products as a result of high taxes to be close? Do we really want the price of low risk products to be in the neighborhood of the prices of high-risk products? Or should we not rethink this and keep the prices of low-risk products substantially lower than the prices of high-risk products? And I, I think if governments could get together at this point even and say, okay, we'll, we'll rethink this, we'll share the revenue with the provinces, and we will disincentivize an illegal sector thereby, whether we have collectively the, the wherewithal to do that, um, I don't really know. Let's take uh, the excise tax federally uh, and put it into perspective with what would happen uh, if and when Ontario does join the program. You take a regular 30 mil bottle of e-liquid, which used to sell on average for $20. With the federal tax, that bottle now costs $27. That's with $7 in federal tax. When Ottawa, or sorry, when Ontario joins the federal program, that excise tax would double, meaning a single bottle of e-liquid, which many year, for many, many years cost 20 bucks, would now cost $34. And $14 of that would be tax. And it's not just that then. If, 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 if these products are subject to sales taxes, then you're moving up further, uh, further again. Right? If you impose a sales tax on the $34 of 13% or 15% or whatever it is, then you're up towards uh, 30, 38. You're not far away from $40. And so you're getting tax rates that are essentially, you know, 75, 80% on top of the, uh, the pre-tax uh, price. These are very high rates. And they don't just uh, disincentivize people from using the legal uh, sector they also send an, an inappropriate message to consumers because 
by pushing the prices of the low-risk products up towards the prices of the high-risk products, you're essentially saying to the public, uh, these products are not very much different in terms of their health consequences. That's the message you're giving. Whereas Public Health England and the Royal College of Physicians in England and many other bodies have been telling us for almost a decade that they're at least an order of magnitude less risky. So governments are sending a very bad signal to the consumer. And the results of that are in evidence in the surveys that are undertaken uh, by uh, Ottawa Statistics Canada every year, the Canadian Tobacco and Nicotine Surveys, that is. And, and you, know, you know yourself, Brent, the, uh, the degree to, uh, to which pe people at large think uh, e-cigarettes are less dangerous than cigarettes. It's, uh, it's a terribly small number. I believe the percentage I saw recently from the Canadian Tobacco and Nicotine Survey that was carried out in December of 22 and January of 23, um, among the general public, I think it was only 4% of the public who believed that e-cigarettes were very much less risky or dangerous than cigarettes, 4%. Vapors, uh, I think vape, the, vape, the rate at which vapors thought they were less, very much less dangerous was about 20 or 25%. So among the vapors, the, the rate was much more elevated. But this is very important. And I think on the political front, because it's very easy for provincial governments to implement restrictive laws against vaping in a situation where there is a massive degree of ignorance on the part of the public. And no effort is being made, no serious effort is being made by Health Canada or any other group to convey truth to the public. The health agencies are afraid to say this product contains at most 5% of the toxins of the cigarette. The public health agencies are afraid to say that. And so the public at large is living in a state of ignorance and the public at large is going to be supportive of a measure which they feel is regulating and reducing the use of a product that's almost as dangerous as a cigarette. So we have a major, uh, you know, epistemic problem, a major knowledge problem on the, on the part of the public. And so there would be very little, there would be very little voice of opposition to, to these rules. When you look at what the federal government did with its excise tax with cannabis, as you mentioned, is different than what they did with nicotine vaping products, which is only going to get compounded once the provinces join in. So let me ask you, when you look at it, there's an intention behind the taxation. One with the cannabis is to encourage uh, the sale because making it competitive to the illegal market. When it comes to the nicotine, how could it be anything but punitive and trying to crush the industry? It's a bit of a mystery. And you had a wonderful speaker on recently, uh, Mike Pesco, and I think you asked him a similar kind of question. And his answer uh, was what, what I would have thought as well. Um, it, we live in a strange era because harm reduction is a philosophy that is being accepted progressively more widely. We've, we've legalized cannabis. We, we have needle exchanges in, in many places. 
Um, we we use, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're giving police naloxone so that when people overdose, they can prevent them from dying by giving them an, an immediate shot of that. So um, there is a great deal of sympathy on a lot of fronts towards, towards harm reduction. Uh, we've become much more tolerant and much more understanding in several different areas, but there is still a block when it comes to a harm reduction where nicotine is concerned. And it's a, it's a bit of a mystery. And I think Mike's answer to you was that, you know, we may have to wait quite a while before harm reduction permeates this particular area of public policy. It seems to me that if all of these taxes go into place, that basically vaping would approach or is approaching the same cost as smoking. Yeah, uh, approaching, approaching. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, a day. Uh, you know, a day, a pack a day smoker is going to be spending fifteen dollars a day on uh, cigarettes. Uh, if you buy a, a ten milliliter disposable, uh, how much will it cost you on a on a daily basis? Maybe ten, eleven, ten, eleven dollars. Uh, but you used to be able to, um, uh, you know, vape for three dollars $3 a day if you used a, um, a fill-it-yourself kind of uh, device, you know, where you buy the pods and fill the pods yourself. So, yes, the, 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 the cost is getting up there, and it's now in some instance, and when the Ontario tax goes on, it might be, I don't know, three-quarters of the price of uh, a smoking habit. And... Um, then that takes away the economic incentive to to move move away from a project a product which you've been hooked on for a very long time. Ian, I have to say, when we take a look at all the taxes and the entire environment in Canada when it comes to vaping, but certainly the taxes, I don't think that I would have quit smoking in 2015 with this environment. I can say that the biggest reason I quit smoking was the tax. I mean, it was almost an $8,000 a year uh, post-tax uh, habit. And, you yes. know, so, it, but now, you know, why would you even consider quitting smoking for this deadly, dangerous, disgusting habit that's called nicotine vaping? Yes, well, I think there are two factors at work here. One is the relative cost of consuming nicotine through vaping or versus uh, through combustible products. And the other is the information component that I, I spoke about a few minutes ago. So if, if you are in an environment and we seem to be moving into it, where there is a great deal of ignorance about relative risk on the one hand, and the price differential between the low risk and the high risk products is diminishing very dramatically, then the low-risk product becomes much less attractive on both counts, both on both from an economic standpoint and from a knowledge-slash-health standpoint. So I'm quite concerned about the future. I'm so mad. I would have never quit smoking if, if, I, if this world was what it is today. The key thing that I looked at when I decided whether or not I was going to quit smoking through vaping was its viability. Obviously, the cost, that was massive. Flavors, totally. But I literally said to myself, I can get a pack of cigarettes, my Rothmans Blue, 
that I could get anywhere in the world, at any store, at any time, any day. What's the availability going to be like for vaping products? And I looked at Canada and this huge, well-developed, burgeoning uh, world of vape shops and, and a culture, a taste culture behind it and so forth. I went, yeah, I, I, this thing is for real. I'm going to be able to sustain myself on vaping. What you make uh, about the sustainability of the market, I think, is a very important one because you now have uh, a huge number of consumers who are, uh, let us just say, nicotine dependent. And they are accustomed to being able to satisfy their nicotine dependence by purchasing project, uh, products that are appealing to them. You know, they may be buying a, a disposable in a mango flavor. They may be filling their own pods in a peach flavor, but whatever. They're, they're very, they're at the one, at the same time, they're um, able to satisfy, uh, they're able to generate some pleasure, but they're also able to satisfy a need. And if you deprive people of the ability to both derive pleasure and satisfy their need, then you have to ask, how are those people going to react? And that's the big uncertainty here. Um, I, I don't want to sound like a scaremonger, but buying illegally is extraordinarily easy in the modern era. If you uh, want to buy cigarettes, you just have to go on uh, any number of websites and what you will find, I have explored these websites and any number of them will deliver a carton of cigarettes to you. They'll FedEx it to you for $50, $55. And you would have paid $140 for those, that same carton of, of cigarettes. And they promise you that, um, you know, it will be very like the product that you're uh, accustomed to buying. We're not now, we are no longer in an era where illegal cigarettes are, 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 are 200 sticks of dreadful stuff in, in a Ziploc bag. We're dealing with a, a very sophisticated market for cigarettes. And the quality of these cigarettes is approaching the quality of the cigarettes produced by Canada's big three producers. And so if we observe that in the cigarette market, a huge percentage of it is illegal, um, a quarter would be a lower estimate. A third might be closer to the truth when we look across Canada. Uh, this is, tobacco is a very easy product because it's not bulky to sell illegally. And if we observe that rate of illegality in the cigarette market, is there any reason to believe we won't approach that rate when it comes to e-cigarettes once all of the conditions for purchasing e-cigarettes become very unfavorable? So it's a, it's a very worrying time, and I wish we weren't going through this massive experiment, which will probably end up being very costly and will probably end up with a very high illegal market. When you were last on the show in October of 2022, we discussed a detailed report you wrote that provided an estimate for how much revenue the federal excise tax would generate in its first year, which we basically have just been through. Your modeling at the time forecasted a $240 million tax revenue for the federal government with a corresponding fall in vendor revenue of $365 million. Do we know um, 
do we know how well the government did in this first year? Unfortunately not, because we still don't have uh, publicly available data on that. Um, the, the total government revenue, if you look from, from um, vaping products, uh, I estimated, or we estimated, my, my co-author and I, we estimated to be in excess of $500 million. And then we broke that down into sales tax revenue, um, that accrued to the federal government, sales tax to the provinces, and excise uh, revenues as well. Um, that's, a, that's a large amount of money. And when you double the tax rates, as Ontario is doing, you are going to reduce the quantity of the product subject to the tax that's being sold. So it's not the case that you take the existing quantity and you double the tax revenue from it. That's that's not going to happen. And you know, if worst comes to if 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 the situation comes to the worst possible outcome, that is to say, if enough people decide to go to the illegal market, the doubling of the tax rate may end up in a situation where we've no more revenue being generated than we had when we just had the federal. Uh, excise tax in place. So from that standpoint, I, th I think it would be much better if the federal government and the provinces got together and decided on a common low rate and have the federal government distribute um, a substantial part of the revenues to the provinces, rather than having them getting into a de facto squabble. Indeed, the federal government has invited the provinces to join it, but de facto, it's going to be a fight for the division of the revenues because the total tax revenues are going to be impacted. So um, we really need to do things better than we're doing them right now at the government level. Yeah, so if the federal government is bringing in a lot of tax revenue, and in fact, I think it might be more than what they originally forecasted, it might be better off for everybody for the federal government to share some of that money with the provinces, keep a provincial additional tax low or not not at all. Um, otherwise, it's killing the golden goose. Exactly, and and we don't know. To be honest, we don't know exactly how that's how that's going to work out. But you have to assume that when you increase taxes by this amount, you know, when you increase prices by this amount that people are going to find other ways of buying their product. And that's going to reduce the tax base very substantially. Uh, and by, this, by the same token, when, when Quebec bans all of these flavors, uh, what's it doing? It's cutting federal revenues, right? It didn't have an excise tax in place at the time it decided to do this, but the federal government had. And so by reducing the total sales in the province, it's going to be hitting federal revenues. Now, Quebec has also talked about um, bringing its own excise tax in, but I'm not sure there'll be much of a tax base by the time left, by the time they get around to implementing that if they, if they do so. The consumer pays these taxes. It's not some big bad, it's not big tobacco paying the taxes. It's not some big corporation. And even the vape shop owners for the most part are independent you know, business people. This is something that the consumer pays. And so it really is the burden burdens on them. And boy, poor, the poor consumer of vaping products, they basically probably spent decade, two decades, maybe more, it's paying that tax that kept going up every year on a pack of cigarettes. 
to the point where they recognized they did what the government was indicating to them by increasing the taxes to such an extreme level on cigarettes. They were telling the smoker that you better quit. It's good for your health and it'll be good for your pocketbook. And for those that did that through nicotine vaping, they now find themselves 10 years later in exactly the same position they were. And that's the government on their back, beating them down through taxes. Yes, we don't we don't know if the suppliers are going to be able to absorb any of this. We don't really know what their profit margins are. You know, will a, will a supplier who sells a, a 10 milliliter disposable for $25, will they be able to reduce that to 23 or $22? Um, they may be able to take a dollar or two out of their profits as well. It, it may be passed on 100% to the consumer. Some of it may be absorbed by the supplier, but we don't really know what their profit margins are. We don't know to what extent that they'll be able to absorb this. But even if they do absorb a couple of dollars of it, we're still pushing those prices very, very high, and we're pushing them ever closer to the price of combustibles. So yes, the consumer will bear most of it, at least the consumer who continues to buy in the in the legal market. So I guess final question then uh, for you, Ian, is, what could be done differently um, that you would advise the federal and provincial governments? Well, I think um, a, a, num a number of things. One is, as I've already mentioned, for the federal government and the provincial governments to get together and to agree on a cannabis-type tax regime. The other thing I would recommend is that the health agencies consider the well-being of adults as well as the well-being of youth. One of the problems in youth access is that right across the country, I'm told by my colleagues at the Canadian Vaping Association, is that we have an insufficient number of inspectors in vape shops and in corner stores. And the law-abiding members of the, the law-abiding vendors are very upset with the rogue vendors and so um, while the vaping industry tends to be universally tarred or universally badmouthed, you know, the vape shops are selling to youth. Well, it is the case that there are a number of rural vape, shop, vape shops selling to youth, but we don't have a sufficient number of inspectors going to those vape shops and trying to find out who they are and imposing penalties. So uh, my view is that it would be a much better policy if we wanted to prevent sales to youth to get more inspectors out there and make sure that youth cannot easily access fake products if that's what the policy is rather than say no we're going to ban this whole line of products because it appeals to youth while at the same time that whole line of products is exactly the line of products that's appealing to adults at the same time so banning the flavors is a very blunt sort of tool to reduce youth vaping you really have to try to restrict the supply to youth in some other way while permitting adults to consume what's an adult product.